Well, this weekend, I want to speak on this subject called the pitfall of us versus them. And essentially, I'm going to look at Psalms chapter 4. About two months ago, at the 15-story prayer meeting, I really felt the Lord speak to me. And the Lord saying to me that I've not been spending time in the book of Psalms. And honestly, from January to September, I didn't really spend time in the book of Psalms. I've gone through some of the you know, verses, but I've not been systematically reading through the Psalms for this year. And I really felt the Lord direct me back um, to it and wanting me to make the reading of the Psalms a regular practice. Can I just confess to all of you that I'm still trying to be consistent about this, okay? And to make sure that I read and, uh, at least one Psalms every day and to um, really take time to ponder through it. In any case, when the Lord spoke this to me about uh, two months ago, I immediately started to look for books and commentaries that can accompany me in this process in order to enrich my experience in going through the Psalms. You know, I went through my Kindle and I found that I actually have two books already on the book of Psalms. One of them is the Songs of Jesus by Timothy Keller and the other is The Treasury of David by Charles Spurgeon. And both these books have been very, very helpful for me as uh, I'm reading through the Psalms and taking me beyond just a peripheral reading and triggering many, many thoughts that I've been receiving from the Lord uh, in my study of the book of Psalms. And this weekend, I want to particularly speak from Psalms chapter 4 because... I think that as I go through this, you'll find that this Psalms has just an incredible applicability for us in our daily lives. Amen? So let's begin by looking at Psalms chapter 4, verse uh, 1. It says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. I love this next part. It says, How long, O you sons of men? Will you turn my glory to shame? I, you know, the, this is such familiar language that we oftentimes uh, say as well when we're going through a difficult time, is it? And again, David says, How long will you love worklessness and seek falsehood? falsehood? Selah! You know, he's saying to the Lord, you know. Sorry, wrong version. Okay, that's the Singlish version. Actually, it says Selah. Okay, verse 3, it says, But I... But, but know that the Lord has set apart for Himself Him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to Him. Be angry, but do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed. Notice that meditate in your heart, not verbally, not say out anything loud, but meditate in your heart. And it says, uh, and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increase. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you, uh, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm going to break this down into three points for us so that it's easy for us to follow. And I want to begin by talking about the structure of the Psalms. And I do so to give us a broad sense of how to navigate through these psalms, okay? And I think that this psalms is really worth our consideration because it is super reflective of our walk with God. And I think as I go into this, many of us will have some kind of a knowing knot in our hearts and we say, yeah, yeah, I can identify with this, okay? So this is how I break the psalms down. Verse 1, I call it, my good. Verse 2, I call it, my enemies. Verse 3, I say, my God. And verse 4 to verse 8 is no longer about me, but God's prescription. Now, I don't know if this is true for you, but it is so true for me that many times as I read through the book of Psalms, I struggle with the fact that often there is this sense of me versus them. Think about it. How many times have the psalmist called for help from God? Lord, look upon me and then go on and pray for victory over his 
enemies. Now, when I was a young Christian, I love it. I love to read the Psalms and because it always gives me some level of relish and I'll remember these prayers and then after that, I will unleash these prayers against everyone whom I deem to be against me. I love to use these prayers on people, right? Oh, yeah, deal with them, deal with me, you know, elevate me, but bring them down. And, uh, you know, and as I grow older as a Christian, perhaps a little bit wiser, hopefully, I find that something is wrong in that attitude, that taking such a stance just seems to be overly self-centered. And then I began to think, what if I'm the one who's in the wrong? What if I've misunderstood the situation? What if I've not had all the full facts of a circumstance? You know, and that I've not read things correctly and I've thought that somebody else has wronged me when in fact I've wronged somebody else. And what if, worse still, what if somebody also is reading the same Psalms and they're using the same prayer on me? <laughs> and then there is this theological complication that is put before me. Is the world really so binary? Is this how God wants us to see the world? Us versus them? If the whole word of God is to be taken at face value and used as this, does it then mean that our faith is meant to be polarizing, combative, and easily weaponized on those who are in opposition to us? I remember about two months ago as I was preparing this message, you know, I wasn't planning to, to preach it, but you know, the Lord spoke to me and I was just kind of writing this down. And that night, there was a big match between uh, Liverpool and Tottenham, if I remember correctly, okay? And I'm no soccer fan anymore. I think that the game has got too much money involved in it. But I was a Liverpool fan in the 1990s, okay? All of you from the 1990s. Woo! Praise the Lord. Nobody raised their hands in response. <laughs> All you 90s people, as old as me, stop lying. <laughs> But I remember when I was young, there was this, all these, you know, the big matches would be Liverpool versus uh, Man United, right? And I would, go, I would go into prayer, intense prayer, and say, Lord, you must give victory to Liverpool. Man United must lose. They're called the devils. You cannot bless the devils. <laughs> and I feel totally justified in my prayers. But then all of a sudden, I come to church, and then I found people who are Man United fans. And guess what's worse? I found that they were praying last night as well for the Man United. <laughs> And then I thought to myself, what an amazing thing for God, right? I mean, He's up in heaven and all these soccer fans who are Christians all praying to Him for their teams to win. To whom does God listen to? Does God weigh out, are there more Liverpool fans praying and therefore He answers and gives them victory? What a dilemma this puts God in, right? And hence, I feel like there's a need for us to take a little bit of a closer look, to go beyond just a surface reading of the text in the Psalms and to consider the full Psalms, not to just pick a few verses and then to listen to what God is saying in the fullness of the whole Psalms. Amen. And this is what I hope to do just with this one Psalm and maybe perhaps through this, it'll help you as you consider the rest of the Psalms that are there in the Word of God. The, the next point I want to bring to us is concerns the first three verses and I, I've subdivided it earlier as I mentioned into my good, my enemies and my God. Now this first three verses I think really describes you and I, our walk with God. Because I think that we all begin and start here. I don't know about you, I find these three verses highly identified, especially when I begin to encounter a problem. And if the problem is with other people. And this is actually the process I find myself going through very often. The sequence is particularly evocative. And I explain this, I believe all of us will secretly smile in our hearts because we have all done this before, guaranteed. If you think you've never done this before, you need to come to the altar after this and repent, okay? 
Because all of us has done this. You see, when we, whenever we encounter someone coming in opposition to us, the first reaction we have is always a defensive one. I've got two little girls in my home, and whenever something uh, wrong goes happen, you ask them about some kind of a misdemeanor, you know, my girls will immediately claim and go on the defensive, and they claim, no, 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 I didn't do this. Then it's discovered that they did do it. Then it says, no, 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 that's not my intention. I did this and then this other thing happened. They are always on the defensive. Now, adults, we are no different. Our first reaction whenever an accusation comes to us is always going to be defensive. And we, our defense would be immediately to speak of our own good, our own righteousness. We come before God and says, Lord, but I'm righteous. My intentions, my motivation were right. We come to the Lord and says, Lord, this is not what I meant. I've been misunderstood. And then when we are done defending ourselves, the next thing we go into is we go into a victim mentality. We see where we have been hurt where we've been unjustly treated and maligned and the attention somehow is always on ourselves rather at the people around us. Now, notice this, that David did exactly this thing. In verse 1, this is what it was all about. David identifies his righteousness before God and says, Lord, I'm right. And then he appeals to God to see the distress, the distress that he's going through. Lord, I'm the victim. And then he calls on God and says, Lord, listen to my prayers, answer my prayers. Now, I want for us to please notice this, that David was no petulant, spoiled brat, young in his faith, who doesn't know what it means to walk with God. David, by this time, had killed Goliath. He was a man who was fully grown in spirituality and not, of course, not perfect, but he was not a young Christian. He was a, there was a certain maturity already in him. And the maturity and understanding is reflected in the Psalms because when he comes before God, he doesn't declare his own righteousness, but he declares the righteousness of God upon him. He comes with humility before the Lord to plead with God and says, Lord, would you please look at my pain and my difficulties? He rightly deduces that it is only prayer and prayer alone that is most effectual in unlocking the situations that we find ourselves in. But the problem is the starting point remains erroneous. It remains humanly centered on David himself. And that's what we do. The next progression for David is then, after focusing on himself, to focus on his enemies. And likewise, do we do that with ones who are causing us the pain, the ones who are stirring up the problems that we are facing? Their deeds suddenly become magnified in our eyes. We see their error, we measure their shortfall to the last minute detail, and then we wish for their removal or their demise. Now, please, my brothers and my sisters, I know every one of us have done this before. We're not pointing fingers at anybody, we're pointing fingers at ourselves. But you know, as Christians, we don't stop there. It's impossible for us to remain in that place. I know we've all done this. We've all been defensive. We've all been accusative. But we all also realize deep in, within us that those attitudes, that response is not right. There is an internal witness of the Holy Spirit that would not permit us to camp around those kind of thoughts. We know inherently that there is something wrong when we go on this particular track. And if we continue to dwell at this level, then bitterness will sprout unhindered and actually destroy our lives. We know this. And therefore, as Christians, as we've done through this, gone through these uh, points, then what do we do next? We, we come to God. We all then approach God and ask the Lord and says, Lord, do something. Now, here comes a critical moment. For even when we turn to God, our first turning to God is often a posture whereby we think that we can use Him for our purposes. 
We fit God into our little narrative. We confine our understanding into all that is happening and says God and assumes God, you see things exactly the way I see it. God, you are on my side. I'm the center and I'm the apple of your eye. Then in our, even in our prayers, we squeeze him into the confined space of our own experience and perspective and we say, Lord, answer our prayer in these specifics. And to remain in this place, I want to say to us, my, my brothers and my sisters, is dangerous. We think that we've invited God into our situation. We think that we are directing our problems to God, but in reality, we're still sitting in the center of our own world. We're still ruling as the king of our own lives and our own views predominate all our thinking. You see, David prayed in verse three, but, I, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. The appeal that David makes is every bit valid. And you know what? God answers us when we pray. The only thing is that God doesn't answer us in the exact content of what we're praying, but He wants to bring a deliverance to us that is far deeper in which our lives get transformed with a glimpse of how He sees things. Which brings me to point three, sin not, sacrifice, and safety. And I want to set this up by asking us again one more time, let's read through verse four to verse eight. In verse four, it says, be angry, but what? Do not sin. Big difference. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Meditate in your heart, in your heart. Keep your words within yourself, not outside. Verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increase. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see, the second half of this Psalms is no longer David's perspective, but it's God's perspective and his solution for us. Let me say, this is highly applicative, it is practical, and it is redemptive. The solution God provides will literally change and transform us, lead us to an understanding of who he is and keep us spiritually healthy. So let's dive into this, okay? The first half of Psalms 4, as we mentioned, we find ourselves in a state of struggle. We are angry. We are facing the pitfall of contextualizing our situation into one that is us versus them. And the antidote to this malice is found in the second half of the Psalms. Now, and it begins with one of the most liberating statements I find in the book of Psalms in this particular chapter in which God gives us permission to be angry. Wow! What God is doing is giving us permission to express our emotional frustration. He's saying, be angry, tremble, grind your teeth over what you deem to be injustices and slights to our, your own virtuosity. But, but whatever it is, you can be angry, but beware that you do not cross the line into sin. God is saying you can let all the emotional waves wash over your thoughts, but do not let them cross into words or into action. I love this. I love this. You know why? Because so often we want to minimize our own emotions. So many times as Christians, we think that it is unspiritual for us to be emotional about our things. And you know, the picture of maturity for us is the man who is stoic, emotionless. Stab him. I feel nothing. Stab him. No, I feel nothing. But that's not how God makes it to be. You see, we must have mastery control of our emotions, but God, did not, but God did create us with an emotional element. We are tripartite being. There's a soul that God has given to us. And God is here giving us permission to express what we are going through emotionally. We're not asked to suppress our feelings and emotions. We are not told to pretend that, that, that everything is okay when nothing is right within us. 
But the one cautionary line that is drawn for us here is that we must not cross into sin. My brothers, my sisters, it is sin when we begin to accuse, to gossip, to slander, to backbite, to criticize and to undermine others. It is sin when we allow our pain to continually fester and develop roots into our souls. It is sin when we allow our anger to become rage and we begin to take it out on others. This is the mastery that God is calling us to, to not allow ourselves to cross into sin. Amen? But it doesn't end there. So far, this is just a partial antidote. The next portion is equally important. Psalms 4 verse 5 says, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. What is the sacrifice of righteousness that God is calling David to give? But the, the, the sacrifice of righteousness is simply to do what is right in the eyes of God at the cost of your own personal sense of justification and vengeance. Let me say that again. The sacrifice of righteousness is simply to do what is right in the eyes of God at a cost to your own personal sense of justification and vengeance. Therefore, what are we to do? We are to leave it in God's hands and walk away. I have learned through experience that obedience to this simple piece of advice is far from easy. If you've never experienced this, if you've never been required to walk through this, then you really don't know it. This can't be taught. This can't be explained in the classroom. This can't be facilitated into some kind of an understanding. This can only be experienced in person. Either you have experienced this or you have not. You see, I've experienced this many times. Many times over small issues that are trivial, in which I have to learn to offer the sacrifice of righteousness, and once in a while over more serious matters. I've gone through moments of anger, of calling down fire on people, <clears throat> of which I'm not proud of, and I thank God that He's never answered my prayers like that. Amen? I've reacted many times in self-defense, but God invariably is going to bring us back to a place whereby He'll put before us a sacrifice of righteousness. You see, that's the nature of God. If our hearts are open to Him, if our hearts are loyal, if our pursuit is for Him, we can go all over in a circle, but eventually God will bring us back to a place where He'll put before us a simple thing and says, will you offer this sacrifice of righteousness? This is the key I'm asking you. This is the key that I'm giving to you. And over the years, God has spoken to me and asked for such sacrifices such as to turn the other cheek in a situation, or to offer uh, praise to Him in times of grief, to overlook an offense, to praise Him and to thank Him when things are not going well, to speak well when criticized. One time, I remember years and years ago, there was a certain incidence of injustice that was going to be exacted upon the church. I remember going to Pastor Young and saying, hey, Pastor, this is what is happening. What do we do? I remember a pastor said to me, he said, let's pray about this and see what the Lord says. I went back, I prayed, and the Lord spoke to me out of Isaiah 53, verse 7. And he said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its surer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And out of the scriptures, the Lord said to me, Lip, the surest have come, Keep, be silent and let them shear. I went to Pastor Young. I said, Pastor Young, this is what I feel the Lord says to us, that we are to be silent. The sharers are here and let them share us. 
Pastor Yang thought for a moment and then he said, yep, Lip, I believe that you have the word of the Lord. So let us be silent and let the shearers shear the sheep. Now, have you ever seen a sheep being sheared? I have. When I was very young, my parents brought me to Australia, went to Perth. We went to this farm visit. They brought this beautiful sheep in, all fluffy, with white wool, Oh, the cutest little thing that you've ever, ever seen. And then they put him in the center and then, you know, the, I don't know who the guy is. He comes, okay. He manhandles the sheep, puts his legs over the thing, twists his neck, and then with a pair of shears, he goes, within minutes, this most beautiful, fluffy sheep becomes a scrawny, naked, shivering, nicks all over, kind of little pathetic thing. The guy came in majestic. He walked out. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what happens. The shearers have come. And I'm telling you, the process of shearing is by no means pleasant. But can I encourage you? Because what this Psalms tells us is that if we are willing to offer the sacrifice of righteousness, then there is a domino effect that follows that is absolutely beautiful. Once the sacrifice is offered, once God receives the sacrifice, then David tells us that four things happen. Number one, God lifts up His countenance to us. What does that mean? I like this other version that says, God smiles on us. This is an answer to the question, who will show us any good? And understand that in the throes of our difficulties, in the throes of our trouble, this is the precise thing that we need. We're asking God, where is good going to come out of this situation? Where is the reprieve? Can I but have a taste of sweetness in the flood of bitterness around me? Where is the good going to come from? And the confident answer of David is that God will come and He will smile on us. He will shine the light of His kindness and His goodness into our lives. This is the refreshing water of the Lord. This is what lifts our countenance. This is what brightens our eyes in the midst of a deep travail and difficulty. This is the promise of God of what He'll do. The next thing David says is that He puts joy in us over what truly is important. David said, put, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increase. In an agrarian society, the most joyous time of the year is during harvest time. And this is especially so when the harvest has been good. And yet here David is saying that the joy that is resulting from giving the sacrifice of righteousness is far greater than any form of success that you can experience in this world. It is a surpassing joy that is not conditional, that is not circumstantial. You see, there is a joy that God wants to bring to us that is not fleeting. The success of this world may satisfy you for a day, for a week, for a month, but I promise you, then you need to go back and get more of it. It's like a dopamine fix that just comes for a moment. But when God brings a true joy into you, it's an everlasting joy that rests upon you all the time. The third thing that David says is he gives you true rest. You see, David was restless. He's telling us he's lying down on bed and his mind is filled with thoughts. He cannot sleep. He's struggling. He's in pain. He's calling out to God. He's frustrated. He's upset. And then all of a sudden, he offers the sacrifice of righteousness and everything changes. Suddenly, his words become speech about peace, about tranquility, about sleep, rest. You know, it's a blessed and supernatural state to be able to sleep, hello, and to sleep well. Did you know that? For those of us who have tossed and turned in bed, unable to sleep, I promise you this, when you're able to sleep well, it's a blessing. But that's how it is. You see, when the supernatural rest of, of God comes upon us, we can sleep through the storms of life. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not talking about those people who are such deep sleepers that when there's an earthquake, they can still fall and they can sleep through, okay? I know some of us are like that. I'm not, okay? But think about this. How is it that Jesus can sleep in the midst of a storm where seasoned sailors are thinking that they're all going to drown and die and yet Jesus has perfect peace. He stands up and he releases the peace on the inside into the external. And I'm telling you, when you have peace on the inside, the external will have to come in alignment to what God has put inside of you. This is the rest that God promises. Finally, He says He'll keep us safe. I think, as I considered the Psalms, that this is the most important outcome out of the four. When we have a right response to difficulties in life, when we offer the sacrifice of righteousness, you know, God is going to reward us. But think about this. He's not, it's not, the reward is not success. It's not renown. It's not vindication and victory over your enemies. It's not prominence. It's not platform. It's not financial gains. It's not fulfillment. It's not acknowledgement in any way. But instead, what is promised is safety. Now, when I first read that, I thought to myself, how blasé? Safety? That just seems like not the most important thing. And I think for a moment, perhaps in the complication of our lives, we have forgotten how fundamental and primary it is to know that God will protect us. His safety is an assurance that He'll provide for us. His safety means that He'll surround us always with His presence. Maybe our lives have become so complicated, there's so many other things that we have. We've got a car, we've got a house, we've got a yacht, I don't know, some of us, or whatever it might be. And we, we are, we, our situation is so safe that we don't even think about safety. We take it for granted. But God says, you know, I want to bring you back to the simplicity of what our lives in Christ is designed to be. I want you to know again, this is really the most important thing that God does to us, for us. We can do without the trappings. We can do without all these additional things. But I promise you, you cannot live without His safety around you. In Jeremiah 45, it contains a very interesting exchange between Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch the servant of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah the prophet gives his servant a word of the Lord and he says to the servant, do you seek great things for yourself? Do you seek them? For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. You see, he's telling Baruch, you know what's the greatest thing you can get? A promise of safety. You know, when you read Psalms, it's the most relatable set of prayers that you ever come across. You come across times where the psalmist will say to the Lord, how long? This morning in my reading of the psalms, the psalmist says, oh, that I might have wings and fly away and hide from all the trouble. I love these psalms. I'm an escapist by nature. Or they'll say, I will go into the depth of the sea, but there your presence will be. I will go to the mountains, but there your presence is inescapable, the presence of God. But as you read through all this, as you go through the Psalms, what happens if you read the whole Psalms is that there is a constant distillation that happens where God begins to remove our fears, our insecurity, our pride, our concerns, and He distills everything down to the one thing that is important. It is Him. He is the focus. He is the centrality of everything about what the psalmist's experience is. It is to bring us to that simple place of an attentiveness to Him that He is all that really matters. That's what the psalms does for us. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. 
Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.